this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. You know, it's funny how little decisions start to become a big deal given momentum and time. You know, those little decisions about products we started or divisions or areas that we got into that we thought, oh, we'll just test. But ultimately, the tests become permanent and the permanents become infrastructure. And after time, we're in businesses and product lines and service lines, which we really have no business being in. And the revenue coming in has been great. The cash flow has been positive. And why change what's not broken is a question that many of us have asked right up until this pandemic. But now is an opportunity for you to really think about those decisions and unwind some of those things that perhaps you did just to chase revenue or perhaps as a, on a whim or as a reaction that you never would have done in hindsight. Now is the time to think about your business and what really drives the value of it. How someone from the outside, an acquirer, would look at your company. And that's exactly what we do at the Value Builder System. Go to valuebuilder.com. You'll see a questionnaire there. You can take and it will show you how an acquirer would look at your company, giving you a rating on the eight factors acquirers care about most. We can also connect you directly to a certified Value Builder. Just go to valuebuilder.com. Man, I love this next guest. Usually on the show, we have technology companies. Oftentimes, they're businesses that are really hard to understand. It takes me about 10 minutes to get my small brain wrapped around what it is the guest does. Well, in this case, I got it immediately. Lee Gregory paints lines on highways. He started off shopping malls, and nowadays, he's graduated to painting them on highways. He got the sense from an M&A professional that his company could be worth as much as eight figures, which is when he decided to get on his front foot and prepare the business to sell. A couple of things he did really, really well. Number one, all the way through the process, he hung on to his equity. The machines, the, the trucks you need to paint lines on highways cost as much as $700,000. Listen to how Lee got his hands on it, on those trucks for roughly 10 cents on the dollar. I asked Lee what he would do differently had he had it all over to do again. Listen for his answer. It relates to something called pre-diligence. The first thing Lee did when he went about putting his business on the market or at least getting his business ready to go to market was he hired a management team, someone to run the company day to day to pull himself out of the operations. A key lesson for anyone looking to build value. There are just tons of little tidbits and nuggets of information in this interview that I think you're really going to like. He defines what ad backs are and how they can really juice the value you get from selling your company. He talks about why your book should include lots of opportunities you haven't monetized yet, which may sound counterintuitive, but he'll give you an explanation as to why that's important. We got hundreds of private equity companies interested in what he was doing. He'll give you the secret for finding literally hundreds of buyers for your company. He'll talk about why job costing can come back to bite you if you don't get it right. And in fact, it can bite you in the process of selling your company if you don't get it documented correctly. And he will also talk about the value of a strategic walk away in a negotiation process and the secret to having the courage to do that. Here to tell you all of his wisdom is Lee Gregory.
Lee Gregory, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. So tell me about this company. What did you guys do? You painted the, the, the lines on highways. Is that, is that right? I thought yeah, those were government. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a, we were a, a highway striping company, and it's one of those things people think that, you know, the government does or it just magically happens. It's just the, the simple yellow and white lines on the roads. Um, started out as a parking lot striping company as a part-time job. I worked a corporate gig and painted lines uh, at night at parking lots. And, um, you know, started out painting Taco Bells and Pizza Huts, and then it grew into painting most of the roads in Minnesota, you know, all the highway uh, lines, the crosswalk lines and everything in between. Wow. So how did you differentiate your lines from the next guy? Cause I'm, I'm assuming that everybody <laughs> kind of paints essentially the same line. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it is, it's funny that the recipes for the paint are all the same. So you're using the same material. Um, what differentiated me is it's um, because I started out in somewhat of a, a more crowded parking lot striping market. Um, I had to give customer service and, and high quality to try and get the work. When I pivoted into highway work, there was only two or three other competitors in the state, and they had all the work and almost more work than they could handle, so they didn't have to have any of those customer service or quality traits that I, I carried into the industry. That um, So that really gave me the upper hand once you started bidding on highway construction work, um, even though it's typically a low bid industry, once you've proven yourself as a, you know, a quality operator, there's, there's often ways that contracts can get extended or there's preferential treatment. So I quickly um, established myself as a, as a quality company in, the, in that space, highway marking. And so it really went up from there and it uh, found lots of work that way. Did that require a significant capital investment to go from parking lots to highways? I mean, was, or did you have to kind of raise money to, to buy all the, the equipment to do that? Um, yes, it is expensive. Um, I didn't end up raising money. I, I, I'm a kind of a cash guy all my life. I've always been able to sleep better at night being, being a cash guy. So I started out um, with a very small used, park, uh, used highway truck. Uh, you know, a brand new highway striping truck is north of $700,000. So I wasn't able to, you know, write a check for one of those out of the gate, but I'm pretty mechanically inclined and I had some guys on my crews that were mechanically inclined. So we went around the country and found used uh, striping trucks that municipalities typically dump after 10 to 15 years. They still have lots of life left, just need a little TLC. So we were able to buy trucks for, you know, 60, 80, $100,000 and put a lot of sweat equity into them. And, and then, uh, you know, they were decent trucks. That's how I got my start. And then as we grew, I was able to, to write those bigger checks for the newer equipment. That's kind of how I got into that. And so you would compete with the, uh, with the established incumbent players saying, Hey, we, you know, we offer great customer service. That value proposition, you know, we offer great customer service can sound so hollow when buyers have never had a chance to experience your customer service. Like, what did you do to make that credible? Like, how did you demonstrate before they bought that that, that was real, not just a sales line? For the first few jobs, I had to just, you know, you have to just go low just to kind of get in the door. But I strategically went to customers that I knew had a lot of other work around them. So you kind of, I thought, you know, I'll get in the door, prove myself, maybe not make as much as I would like but I really want to establish my reputation. So like the city of Minneapolis, for example, is a really big city with lots of bike lanes and lots of things that need striping. 
So I, I got in there with a somewhat low, lower margin job. And then I, I just did the basics. You know, you show up when you say you're going to show up, do what you say you're going to do, and you know, put down a quality line. And that was something they hadn't seen in a long time. So they really found ways to make it. So, you know, the next contract had certain stipulations that required things that I had. So they knew I could get these jobs. And, and was all you- above board, but they just really wanted to work with me, you know, for the taxpayer to get a better quality line. And That's I the other that around the different different municipalities, and that seemed to be a formula that worked. That's the other thing that I think about. I, I, I have no idea what it's like in Minneapolis. I like I think about where I live, and it seems like all those contracts are, you know, they're on the take, or the the, the municipalities are getting money in the back door, and it's just like. Did you get a sense that they were that your competitors were competing in an unfair way, like they were somehow kind of getting, you know, doing, you know, getting favors, giving favors to these municipal buyers? You know, I hadn't. Luckily, I don't see that as a, as a taxpayer. That's I'm happy great. I didn't see it. And as yeah. a, if you're trying to compete, I didn't. I, it, you know, there was jobs I lost that were, you know, four hundred thousand dollar jobs I lost by fifty bucks, and you know they they the, the municipality knew I was a better contractor, but they were tied by the strict rules and there was no funny business, which is fine. You know, you lose fair and square. But sure. it, you know, if there's ways they can put things out to bid or if they can write in the contract, hey, there's the option to extend at our discretion with no follow-on bids. If we get in with that job, they then can say, hey, we want Sir Lines a lot for the next four or five go-arounds. And so once once we get in, we then have the ability to keep doing the work. So there's Oh, many ways that these folks, if they want a contractor, there's ways to do it right without having some of, you know, that, some of that shady business you talked about. And the option to extend as part of the contract, was that something you put into your proposal or was that something they put into their contract? You know, I, um, that was something I saw in a few contracts and then, you know, you get varying degrees of, of, of competence, so to speak, with these, some of these people that are putting these out to bid. So you see, the savvy ones have some of these in there. So then when it comes time to talk to the engineers who may not have the experience, the other ones do, you can say, Hey, you know, these, this municipality often does this, you know, have you considered adding that when you write your bid next time? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. That's a great idea. And then they add that in. So you, it's really a, you know, you really want to help them out in it however you can to make it favorable for yourself without bending any rules. And that's one of the ways was just kind of sharing some of the, the best practices that the more sophisticated entities used um, in, in winning bids with contractors they preferred. What do you, do you ever get young entrepreneurs or, you know, new entrepreneurs coming to you and saying, Lee, I'd love to start a business. You're so successful. Uh, but I just don't have an idea. No, that, I get that quite a bit. I, I'm in this entrepreneurs organization and every year we host a, uh, or EO hosts a, um, a round table for up and coming entrepreneurs. So we get a chance to meet lots of people who have, have a desire to get into business. And, you know, it's, you know, I, you know, when I was a kid, I never thought, you know, I'm going to grow up and be a line striper. Um, <laughs> it was just one of those things that, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be a business owner. That was for sure, but I, I didn't know what it was. So I, you know, I, I tell people it's just keeping your eyes open for something that interests you or something that you see in an opportunity. And I, you know, I, I had a friend that did this out east, and had he, um, I saw what he was doing. It seemed like an industry that I could take winters off. You know, I could work in the summer real hard, 
travel with my family in the winter, so it met some of the criteria I was looking for. You know, it wasn't glamorous, but usually the not glamorous jobs are the ones that have the best margins. So, um, and that's speaking of margins, like what, speaking of margins, like what kind of margins would you make? Like, I'm I'm imagining there's a lot of expenses, right? There's the equipment. I would imagine insurance is expensive. Like, what what would you on a good year make bottom line as a percentage? Uh, kind of margin ways. It varied year to year. Sometimes you have these big contracts that, that kind of dwarf the rest of your, your margin for the year. But it, you know, if you're, you're in the 20 to 30% range, you know, upwards of a good year, maybe 40% range, you know, that's kind of where I would expect to be. So it's, it's you know, in my mind, those are pretty good margins, um, you know, and that's EBITDA. So you get some pretty good, um, good margins for this industry, and it's a seasonal business. So you can work really hard in the summer and then you have all the guys get to go on unemployment and I get to take, you know, three or four months kind of unwind. So that's, <laughs> You're going to trigger like a total onslaught of people getting into the highway striping business. <laughs> I, I encourage them. It's not as easy. You know, it, you think it's just a yellow and white line, but it's amazing how tough it is to put those yellow and white, white lines down uh, even and straight. No, I can imagine. I can imagine. So, <sighs> I mean, the thing is going well. How big did you get before you decided to sell? Like in terms of either like employees or revenue or whatever, whatever proxy for size you want to use. Yeah, there were. Um, you know, I we got one of the biggest. We were one of the bigger striping companies in the Midwest, so we got to be a pretty good size. We were covering, you know, from the Canadian border all the way down to Iowa, and you know, from the Dakotas over to Wisconsin. Um, we got to be a pretty big striping company with, um, you know. 40 employees, you know, millions of dollars in equipment and, you know, about a 40,000 square foot warehouse in Minneapolis. So we got, we're a pretty decent sized striping company. And, and, um, it was, you know, it was to the point where I grew it from, uh, you know, just me and a pickup truck and a one, one striping machine up to where it was. And I, I, I just decided that it wasn't as much, you know, the, the fun of it wasn't there for me as much anymore. It was, one of those things where all the, the daily grinds and some of the things when you get into a really big company, the HR issues and some of the, the, the reporting just wasn't as exciting for me, which is why I started to think about maybe a, maybe an exit down the road. Was there a straw that broke the camel's back? I think everybody will, will especially these days with everything that's going on, kind of relate to this idea that it was just kind of stressful, the HR, the employees is nightmare. But was there like one day where you can recall that something went wrong or something went right. And you're like, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm getting on my front foot and selling. You know, it was actually, there was a clear day. It was when um, the entrepreneurs group I was with, we had a, a meeting that was hosted by a local M&A group at their office. And they give, you know, a 15 to 20 minute overview of what they do and, you know, how they evaluate businesses and what they do. And, there was a sidebar conversation just before I left. Where I, I mentioned high level what I, my business was doing and, you know, where I was going. And, and they said, well, your, your business is, you know, you could easily get, you know, in, into the eight figures for your sale price. And I said, well, I had no idea that what I was doing was worth anywhere near that. So that was, it wasn't the stress. It wasn't the grind that really pushed me. It was like, wow, I have something that has a ton of value that actually could be, you know, life-changing. And maybe I should think about starting to head that direction. So that was, you know, so what the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was just knowing 
what I didn't really realize before what I had. And sometimes <laughs> yeah, you just think, you know, maybe I should probably get out while getting is good. But you would have, what was your perception before that EO meeting where the M&A guy said, you know, you could, you could maybe get eight figures for this. What, like, what did you think it was worth? Like uh, maybe a, a different question would have been like, how did you think it was going to be valued? Was it like the value of the trucks or were you thinking it would be a value, like a, a multiple of profit or what was your sense of, val- of the value before he told you? You know, it was, it was pretty blurry. I didn't really have a good sense. Um, you know, I thought maybe it's, you know, add up all my trucks and maybe some of the contracts I have, and maybe there's a value there in a few million bucks. Um, I didn't really have any idea of how this, this whole M&A world worked and how they evaluate based on a multiple of EBITDA. So this and, was very informative learning from this, this guy that give us the, give us the, the pitch. I would imagine. What was your hard, what were your hard assets worth at the time? Like the, when I say hard assets, I'm really referring to the kind of the trucks and equipment. If, yeah. if you had had to sell that stuff at auction or for its kind of fair market value, what do you think that would have been worth? It, yeah, maybe, you know, there were, there were uh, maybe 4 million bucks, maybe four or five, oh, million, okay. maybe, maybe 4 million bucks where I sold yeah. everything I had. And I, I own the building building separately as a separate entity, so it wasn't, didn't include the real estate, but just the trucks. You know, about four million dollars of the small equipment and trucks. Got it. Got it. That's helpful for sure. So, I understand the triggering event. Somebody tells you that your business could be worth a whole pile of life changing money. What was the next step for you? Where? What did you do next? You know, um, once that seed was planted it really changed my outlook on what I was doing every day before I was, I was just coming in every day, trying to get the next contract, really short sighted approach to how I viewed my business. And I thought, wow, if I can really, you know, get this set up in a, in a way that I could sell it, this could really be life changing. So for the next six to eight months, I really worked hard on bringing in some more management and to try and do everything I possibly could to not be part of the business or not be the secret sauce to why Sir Lines Allow was successful. So I brought in some key people, spent a ton of time, as they say, working on the business, excuse me, on the business instead of in the business, just trying to make it so it was really a great package for someone to buy. And I did that over the next six to eight months. And then, you know, halfway through that, I, I engaged the group that I, I met with, uh, Madeira Partners in Minneapolis. And, and they, they helped me with some of the fine tuning of, of how things should be set up to be uh, more marketable. And then it was just kind of, uh, you know, almost like pushing a piano down the hill. Once it started, once the season ended, everything was going towards getting that across the finish line. What were some of the fine tuning things? You said the company, the, the M&A guys were Madeira? Yeah, Madeira Partners, actually based in YZ. It's just a small shop, a couple of guys. And Jake Fisherman was the, the gentleman that I worked with and really a sharp um, guy that knows knows this kind of a space, knows what they're worth. And I think more importantly with a M&A brokers, what's their network of people they, they go to market with? And they were able to bring us to a lot of names. You mentioned they did some fine tuning uh, of your work. Can you recall any of the, the little things? I'm really curious about even the sort of little small things people, most people wouldn't care about, but I, you know, that they did to, to help you kind of get your business ready to go to market. 
you know, one of the terms uh, addbacks is something I didn't know before this whole process. So an addback, as you probably know, is, is something that is probably not going to be needed after the company goes forward. So it's something that you kind of get credit for at sale. You know, like if my wife is on the, the payroll, she's obviously not going to go post-sale. But there's some credit towards the purchase price. Well, I had a whole bunch of those kind of little little things that I didn't realize at the time are all legitimate business expenses, but they, they really kind of messy up a deal. So it's it's trying to clean some of those up in the process of, you know, maybe you have a home home office that I was working from. Maybe I have some of these little things that, that um, just are all valid, but they, they just make things a little bit, messier so he helped me clean some of those little things up you know get this out of here get this cleaned up you know, move you know you don't need to, to be part of this uh, professional membership group that you never go to this is probably an expense that some of these things that just aren't necessary for the next owner to be part of but get that cleaned up before you have to go through the their due diligence process and removing all those expenses of course has the benefit of increasing the profitability you're able to show, right? And therefore... Absolutely. You don't, you don't realize that, you know, you buy a $10 um, stream of paper and if you're at a seven, eight or nine multiple, that just becomes a very expensive stream of paper. You know, if you're going to be bringing it home to you to use at your home for your kids, you know, it's like, wow, I probably should really make sure that everything I'm buying in the business is truly something that is needed to go forward. It is not something that, you know, while it's a valid business expense for tax purposes, probably isn't needed for this business, you know, in the go forward plan. Love it. So you went through this process, you brought in some management, uh, you went through the ad backs process. What was next? What, did they market the business or what, where, where did you guys go from there? Yeah, they, uh, what they did was um, they, they actually spent a ton of time getting to know my business. And, and I was really impressed with the, depth in which they learned about what the market was, who my competitors were. They put together what they call a book. So it was a 60-page book about lines a lot and everything in the market and in the industry. So someone could take that and read that and really get a good handle on who I am in the business, lines a lot, and where the business is going and what the market's like. And when I first read it, I said, man, this, this, this just seems pretty negative. All these things that I'm not doing in my business, even though I'm doing so much. And he said, you know, that they, what they want to do is they don't want a business that doesn't need to get anything done. They want something they can put some juice behind and really ramp up. So they're highlighting all these things that can be added to, you know, more trucks, more this, this, and this to really get the growth, which is what private equity wants. They don't want just a, a stable, no growth business. So seeing all that was really enlightening and how he put together this book. How do you do that without, how do you do that though, without looking kind of like an idiot? Like how, how do you kind of, I mean, it sounds so uh, counterintuitive, right? You're putting together this book that's making you look like this great business they should buy. And, oh, there are all these like low hanging fruit opportunities that, that Lee hasn't taken care of or gone after. Like, is there a way to do that without sounding like you're just looking at, you know, you're looking at all these opportunities and not taking advantage of them? You know, I, I have learned in the process, it's, it's just about, you know, what's your story? Is it, is it, you know, hey, you know, I, for me, you know, the, the first thing was, let's go out and buy this new piece of equipment, which was a $780,000 piece of equipment. I said to them, you know, I, you know, how much more money and stress did I really need to take on buying this truck? Just, I was making enough money at a comfortable life 
adding this whole other piece of equipment just wasn't something that excited me. So I haven't done it. Now, under new leadership and, you know, less of a, a thing about worrying, going, worrying, worrying about sleeping at night, you know, this is, a, this is a no-brainer. Go out and buy this truck, and it'll make you a ton of money. And, you know, you have to kind of swallow your pride a little bit and say, this just isn't what I wanted to do. And um, doing so, you know, it's just having to do that. And without those M&A guys, I would never would have known to do that. I would have just said, this is a great business. Nothing needs to be done. It's turnkey. So that opened my eyes and the whole process was just being humble enough to say, Hey, here's what needs to happen to make this better. Got it. So what next? Did you get offers or what, how did, how, how did the next chapter yeah. unfold? Uh, so, so they went to market, uh, they went out and they've, you know, M and a brokers have somewhat of a, a network and they went out to a ton of PE groups, hundreds of PE groups. And then they said here, you know, sign an NDA. They send out a teaser, sign an NDA. You want to know more about this industry? Um, and then they, I mean, they sent out probably, they got back 150 to 200, you know, requests for information. So there was a ton of people interested. And then it was a matter of getting some indication of interest back. And my industry at that time, which was 2017, I think we ended up with, uh, 20 indications of interest. And it was really a ton of interest, all varying amount of dollar amounts, all within the range that they thought they would come in at. So my brokers were right in the market. And um, then it's just a matter of weaning down who do we think is going to be the horse to go with, you know, to get us across the finish line. Who do I want my employees to be working with long-term because I care about their future. And, you know, is this is somewhat of my baby, you know, I want to make sure this is someone that is, is, you know, good, good culture, good character, goes to the right people. It's not just about the dollar amount. The indication of interest, the, the IOI, are you drawing a distinction between an IOI and an LOI or a letter of intent? Letter of intent, LOI, excuse me, yep. Uh, okay, so you, you, got, um, you, you got more than one letter of intent. Sounds like more than a dozen letters of yes. intent. Yes, yes, yep. What was, so it, the, what was the range, Lee? Like when you looked at them sort of low to high on a percentage basis, would you say were they 10% different, 50% different? Um, probably almost 50% different. Some were very different. Some had different mm. structures. Some had more, you know, rollover money. All, some were all cash. Some had me staying on board, even though it was clear I didn't want to be. So there was all different ranges. So you had to kind of pick which one suited you the best, suited me the best. Can you describe what you mean by rollover cash? Yeah. So um, with these at least in private equity world, what they want to do is they want to have you, let's just say it's a $10 million purchase price. They want you to roll 20%. So they give you 8 million at closing. And then you're an, a, an owner of this entity with, with the extra 2 million in equity. So you actually leave, you know, leave closing with 8 million and then you're an owner. But for someone who wanted to kind of be out of the industry, the less, less amount I had to roll, the better. Because even though I know they're going to do well, don't know how well they're going to do and what other factors may play in to how well they handle my 2 million. So that's a big, big decision. A lot of folks who work with private equity have to decide is, you know, how comfortable do I feel with these folks running my business determine, you know, what that rollover amount is. The comfort level. So you've got a, a broad swath of offers ranging in value, but also in deal terms. Um, how did you, ultimately narrow it down to a smaller list? Like what was your criteria? Um, I started out with 
uh, dollar amount was the kind of the first screen. You know, is, is it within this range? And yes, these three companies met that group, which is what I waited it down to. Actually, uh, four companies. They met this dollar amount. They met the, they seemed decent in the, in the interactions or the, the phone calls my broker had with them. They seemed like decent people. We want to go to the next round of management interviews with them. And so I weeded it down to four. And, um, and then, you know, least amount of rollover money was the other criteria. So I weeded it down to those four. And then it was a matter of, did we get along? You know, where they come in and they spend five or six hours with us learning about our business. Do we get along? Are these people I want to be you know, own the business and then deal with down the road if there's any issues? And I, I narrowed it down to one that was really good people, and they and they they have actually remained you know decent people and good people to work with. So it it worked out working with you know, having that as one of my criteria. This sort of qualitative: Do we get along? Are these good yeah. good guys and gals? Got it. Yep. Got it. And so. In the end, what was the, what was the, in addition to this kind of qualitative overlay, the, the carry they asked you to, like, did you, did they ask you to carry over some or was it an all cash deal? No, it was, I had some skin in the game. It was, you know, a single digit percent. Um, I rolled over and it was enough to make it meaningful that I cared about, you know, how the business did. Um, but it wasn't enough where if the business folded in a year, I'd lose a lot of sleep. You know, it was enough yeah. so I'd answer phone and be happy to help and you know encourage them to do well but it wasn't that i was cashing checks against it what was the diligence process like after you signed the letter of intent i think mine um mine wasn't as smooth as it could have been because my own fault i didn't have um i didn't have organized books i, I used books in the past as basically a means to pay my taxes, not a means to drive the business. So that was because I wasn't, you know, um, didn't have really organized books, I'd say it, it was slower because they'd ask questions and I'd have to dig and, and generate information and it wasn't at my fingertips. So I think the process, had I had much more organized books, it would have been smoother. Uh, and they use KPMG, which is a big, you know, big accounting firm and they're very thorough. And they went through everything. And it just took me a long time to generate some of these reports and dig up the data just because it wasn't at my fingertips. What kind of, I mean, most, most owners, you know, they've got uh, QuickBooks or, or some sort of accounting package. They get their, their net income at the end of the year. They know what kind of how much money they generated and how much profit, et cetera. I mean, what are the sorts of things that you would get asked for in diligence that wasn't at your fingertips? Just give people a sense of the kind of depth of question they might uh, anticipate or they might get g- uh, during diligence? You know, it's, it was a lot of the PE world is, is uh, utilization of equipment and, and job costing. For me, the job costing, which is basically what I made on each job, was done before I, before I bid a job. You know, like I bid a job, it's going to be a $500,000 job. I'm probably going to make 200000 on this. And I do very thorough um, planning before I win the bid. But then post bid, I don't look back and see what it actually made. So I didn't have a lot of that data. And I, all I ended up with is basically all the revenues went into a pot, and I just had my expenses against that. I didn't have a lot of granular detail on what each job looked like. So if I win a $500,000 job, I don't really know what it ends up making me. It just adds money to the pot. How did not having that information impact 
your deal? It just took a lot longer because the information is all there. Uh, we know what we did in that job. We know how much paint we used. It just means you have to grind, you know, go over all these jobs over the last 12 months or even two to three years and say, here, here's this big job. Let's go through every payroll record for the two months we're on that job and dig out that data and dig out the amount of paint we used. It just slowed everything down. And then it makes them wonder, you know, how can a business run like this without, you know, better, better analysis? Did you get, did they try to come back to you and lower the price they initially offered? No, I'll, I'll give them, uh, you know, that's one of the things I think starting off with quality people is they didn't try and re- retrade anything. They just, it was more of, you know, whatever the EBITDA multiple was, that's what it was going to stay. Now, the amount of our EBITDA may go up and down, and we, we haggle back and forth on some of that. You know, is this truly, you know, your EBITDA, or is it this? And so there was a little bit of back and forth on that, but it was, in the end, it, I felt it was very fair. A lot of it was my own doing. I just didn't have, you know, as organized the books as I should have had. As you went through the diligence process, you, you know, you signed the letter of intent There obviously is a big number on the piece of paper. Um, how would you characterize your appetite to get the deal done through the diligence process? Like, what, were you more and more anxious to get it done or were you starting to get cold feet as it, as it dragged on? I uh, never got cold feet. Um, halfway through when we were back and forth on this EBITDA number, um, you know, I said to myself, it's amazing. I actually have, I've done all the things you need to do to have a business that I don't need to be part of. I've got the management in place. I've got the numbers looking great. Things are organized. You know what? Let's just walk from the table and I'll have a business that I don't need to run anymore because I have the management team in place. But then knowing my personality, I just, I, I just carry the stress of the business with me wherever I go. So I wouldn't, even though in theory it sounds great to have a business that's turnkey and nobody, you know, they've got somebody running it and no one needs to oversee it. My personality is such that I wouldn't be able to really leave it behind. So, you know, while for a few days I wavered just walking away and just keeping the business and, and, and um, owning it as an absentee owner, I, I, I dug back in again and went through the process and got to the finish line. And I have absolutely no regrets. And I'm glad I, glad I kept going. And did you communicate that, reticence or you know second thoughts to the to the buyer did you say you know what guys maybe maybe this isn't for me yeah i i threw my broker so one thing that's nice is working with um jake fishman the material gentleman he he everything went through him so he you know all these concerns and frustrations i had i i bounced off of him and he's been through a lot of deals he obviously wants to get the deal done so i did say to him hey you know what jake this, this, they want to go to this level. I don't want to do that. I'm just going to walk. And, um, he said, let's just, you know, let's just play a few things out here and see what happens. And then, you know, this is part of negotiation. Your, your willingness to walk away is actually may help our position in that they're, they're this far along and they've spent this much on due diligence. They might give a little bit and, and you know, get it across the finish line as well. And unknowingly, <laughs> my, my willingness to walk actually got them more excited and we came back to the table and they came up and I came down and we made something happen. That's fantastic. And to what degree did having three other shortlisted buyers embolden you in those conversations? Cause it, you had other people that you'd even shortlisted that had similar sort of 
value expectations. Did that was, en- yeah. enhance? Yeah. It was, it was, it was reassuring. I, um, you know, if there'd only been one seller, I might've been willing just to say, Hey, I'll take all your, con- you know, I'll give you all these concessions. I just went out, but knowing that there was, you know, three other guys uh, standing behind with their hand out ready to give me money. I said, you know, let's just, let's just uh, keep going with these guys. And if it doesn't work out, I have, have these other, other folks, you know, as an option, but I, it's a grueling process. At least it was for me. So I, I wanted to get to the finish line because all these back and forth happened kind of at the 11th hour. And I just said, I do not want to go through this whole due diligence again. So if there's a way we can get across the finish line with the ones we have, I think it'd be great. I didn't, it wasn't as easy as just saying, you know, not these guys, but I'll sell to these guys tomorrow. It was, I got to start the whole process over again. I'd be curious to know how you are stick handling things with your spouse. So in your own admission, early in the process, you were really surprised at, at, at the number. Like, oh my gosh, I never thought it could be like that. Did you let your spouse know what the numbers were they were throwing around? And, and, and what's the pillow talk between you guys during the diligence process? Yeah, when I, when I first came home uh, and told her the number, she was just blown away. You know, here she sees me going away and come home covered in paint and dusty and then i and i'm saying like hey we could actually be multi-multi-millionaires here paint, paint lines on roads can you believe this and she was just blown away and um so she she's always been very supportive of me and everything i do so she you know during that period when i said ah, maybe i'll just walk away from this whole thing and keep it she was supportive of, of all of it she said if that's what you want to do then i'm fully supportive or if you want to sell it i'm also fully supportive so at no time was she saying you got to sell this thing she was always, you know, whatever, whatever works the best for you and the business, then I'm behind that. It's really helpful. That's fantastic. Well, that's great. Um, and it, of course, it does have a happy ending because you did consummate this deal and, and got it done. Uh, did, you, did you buy yourself something? Did you, did you, did you buy a fancy car or a house or what, what did you do to celebrate? You know, I, I did celebrate. I sold it in the end of, um, end of 17 and things I really wanted to do was spend more time with my family and, you know, running a business that's seasonal in Minnesota in the summers, really tough to have time off in the winter when it's cold and the kids are in school. So we, yeah. for years, we didn't do a whole lot of traveling. So we, um, as soon as I sold the business that next spring, we, we got a one-way ticket um, to Europe and my wife and our three kids, we just went over there for three months and traveled all over Europe and all the things that we had wanted to do for a while. And, it was great not having to talk to anybody back back in the states. I could just leave my phone off and really be present with the kids. So it was, you know, we and we didn't we we just did everything we wanted to do. We rented the cars we needed to rent. We didn't kind of go on the cheap. So, you know, did I splurge? Yes, but it was I think things that were great for the kids to learn, and we had a great family experience. Okay, what did you drop on the three months? Give me the round ballpark number. Oh, um, it was probably. About forty thousand bucks. I love it. You know, cheaper than a car, but it was you know we no, B and B's that kind of thing. So it wasn't too bad, but it, we really had a good time. Good for you. Those are those are precious moments for sure, and you'll your kids will remember. How old were the kids at the time? Uh, eleven, nine. Excuse me, eleven, eight, and five. Fantastic. Well, they're, they're certainly the two older ones will remember that for forever. And, and hopefully the younger one as well will have yeah. some memories. So we can, that's fantastic. 
That's fantastic. Uh, I'm so grateful for you sharing the story. You've shared a ton of value today. Um, is there, you know, what's the best way for people to reach out if they wanted to, to, uh, to make a connection with you? Do you do LinkedIn or what's, what's the best way for people to reach out? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. You can certainly reach out to me there. Um, and I have, I can give you my email. I'm at LeeGregory1 at Gmail. And I'm, I, I love everything business. So if there's anybody who's <laughs> contemplating the process or, or going through this at all, I, I, I really enjoy the uh, business aspect of this and everything that, you know, entrepreneurs are willing to exit. So I'm happy to share my experience with anybody who's interested. Well, that's very, very generous. So LeeGregory1, the number one or O-N-E? Yep. Nope, number one. The number one. Awesome. Well, Lee, I appreciate doing that and also extending that, that offer to our listeners. Uh, thanks again for doing this. Thank you very much for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.